Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can sing your praises, that we can remember who you are, that you are our God. In a world that, com- that competes for our allegiance, we know who you are and what you've done. And we can trust you with everything. Open your word to us now. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Andrew, and I'm a pastor here at Christ Community. And if you've been here with us the last few weeks, you know we've been in a series uh, on startling statements of Jesus. And uh, this morning, we have a doozy for you. Um, It's hard to imagine a more shocking statement than this one. Uh, It's from Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27. So turn to the New Testament, first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5. And I'm going to start by reading that scripture with you. Matthew 5, starting in verse 27. Here's God's word. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, isn't that just a cheerful sentiment for this morning? Um, Some of you out there are already terrified about where I'm going for our application section of the sermon. Um, No worries, no one's going to leave here physically hurt. Um, Jesus... And not the Jesus that our culture tends to present, right? Our, our buddy Jesus, but the Jesus of the New Testament. Um, you never leave a, a, a conversation with him very comfortable. And I don't mean that in the sense uh, that you don't leave a conversation with your mother-in-law very comfortable either. Um, you know, it's not like you say something wrong around him or he never really liked you anyway. Um, it's, yeah, that was, that was meant to be funny. Um, it's more like when you're speaking to Jesus, you're speaking to someone who's more than your friend, you're speaking to your king. And when you speak to Jesus, you are not just talking with ideas with a brilliant philosopher and thinker, you are speaking with the designer and creator of the universe. And when you speak with Jesus, you are not just talking to a really gifted counselor, but you're speaking with a person that can see into your heart and into your soul. He sees past all your facade. And there's really nothing very comfortable about that. So when Jesus says something like this, when he says something like, it's better to maim your body than to indulge in a lustful thought, in a sinful thought, and we take him seriously, then we should feel uncomfortable. And most of us, I think, will feel uncomfortable uh, for one of two reasons with this passage. Uh, on the one hand, you may, you may not believe in a concept of sin. Uh, sin is for you a religious word that just means judgmentalism. It just, it's just an archaic system of rules and regulations that you may or may not agree with on every point. Or it makes you uncomfortable because for you, sin is a mistake. And hey, we're all human. We all make mistakes. So apologize and move on, Right? Uh, it's obviously not the best thing in the world to do to sin, but everybody does it, and it, to err is human, right? Get over it. Either way, uh, what makes us uncomfortable, wherever, whatever angle we're coming from, what makes us really uncomfortable with this passage 
is, the, is uh, Jesus' prescription for sin. Cut off your hand and gouge out your eye. And it sounds brutal and overboard and just downright grotesque, right? I mean, it's like, Jesus, why did you get all medieval on me all of a sudden? Um, why can't I just, you know, talk to a counselor or confess to someone what I've done or accept that I'm not perfect and move on? Why, why, I, why couldn't I do any of those things first? Jesus, for a brilliant guy, you sure got this one wrong. But what I want to talk about this morning, what if the problem is not so much uh, that Jesus' prescription for sin goes too far, but that our view of sin, that our understanding of sin does not go far enough? Uh, What if sin is more than something that we struggle with? If you've been in church for a while, you've heard that phrase, I struggle with this sin. What if it's something more than just struggling with it? What if it is something that is literally killing every one of us? As we unpack Jesus' teaching here, his statement about sin, and yes, I know he focuses in on sexual sin in this context, but what he says about it can can apply broadly to all sin. Um, We need to answer three questions to truly understand why Jesus is saying what he is in this part of Scripture. So those questions are, and if you're taking notes, write these down. Question one what is sin? What exactly is sin? Question two, in light of that, what do we do about it? What do we do about sin? And then finally, number three, how are we freed from it? So what is sin? What do we do about it? And how are we ultimately freed from it? Okay, so first, what, what is sin? And this is a great question to start with, because this is exactly the question that uh, Jesus addresses with the religious teachers of his day. They have names like the Pharisees, teachers of the law, scribes. Jesus had a lot of conflict with them, and they were the authority on sin at the time. They read the, the Bible, they knew it backwards and forwards, and their interpretation of sin, their concept of sin, is what ruled the day. And our scripture today proves the point, because when Jesus starts teaching here, what he says is, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And what he means by that is, you have heard the religious people say this. Here's what I'm saying. Here's the true interpretation of God's will. So Jesus is putting himself directly opposed to these religious teachers. And so much of Jesus' conflict in the New Testament if you've read it, with these religious people, is on this question, what is sin? For the Pharisees, for the, to the teachers of the law, they interpreted sin this way. They read the Old Testament, you shall not commit adultery. That's from the Old Testament. And they read that to mean, okay, don't have sex with a woman who is not your wife. Don't have sex with a man who is not your husband. And if you avoid those things, then you are free from sin. That's how they viewed it. And sin for them, and maybe for some of us today, it was something that you, you do or don't do. It was an action. And as long as you chose the right actions and not the wrong ones, then you were good with God. And to that attitude, to that viewpoint, Jesus says this, I say to you that if you even think a lustful thought, if you even indulge your imagination, and a fantasy about someone who is not your spouse, you have committed adultery in your heart. 
So what does Jesus mean by that? Well, it means that for Jesus, sin is not primarily a wrong action or a wrong choice, but it's that thing in your heart that leads to the action and that makes us want to do things that are bad for us. And Jesus is saying that sins, plural, quote unquote, specific wrong choices are not our problem. Sin The power behind them is the problem. Sins are nothing but the symptoms of a disease that the Bible calls sin. And if you think about that, you know symptoms don't kill people. Diseases kill people. Headaches won't kill you. They may make your life miserable, but they won't kill you. But the tumor that's causing them will. When we minimize sin, when we externalize sin like the Pharisees do, make it about action, we are prescribing aspirin for cancer. We are concerned with managing the discomfort of sin instead of saving our lives from it. We are resigning ourselves to palliative care, right? Pain control, pain management, so that we have a less painful, more comfortable, but just as inevitable death. That is what Jesus is saying. Long before you decide to have an affair, you are having one in your heart over and over and over again, and it is killing you. Now, we might object to that from Jesus and say, okay, I know I've got problems. Everybody's got problems. I've got problems. But it certainly doesn't feel like I'm dying right now. It certainly doesn't feel as dramatic, Jesus, as you are putting this. Well, symptoms vary tremendously, right? I mean, ask any doctor um, and they'll tell you that a, a patient's experience of discomfort can have little or nothing to do with the severity of their condition. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a doctor turned preacher in the last century. And uh, he, he put it this way. He said, suppose there are two patients in a hospital uh, in one room, what he's, this, this guy's propped up in bed. He's laboring to breathe every breath. He's in acute pain and discomfort. He's desperately sick with pneumonia. You go in another room, and the other guy's lying flat on his back, reading a magazine, no distress at all, no acute symptoms, no pain, in total ease and comfort. And yet, he is suffering from a disease that is eating out his insides. Now, regardless of their experience of the illness, of their symptoms, both men's lives are equally threatened. And Lloyd-Jones concludes by saying this, when it comes to sin, it is not the mode or the manner, but the fact that you are dying that matters. It is not the symptoms, but the disease that counts. And if you think about that, this is why some people's symptoms of sin seem quite mild, right? So a a little white lie here, a little cheat there, where others seem very severe, you know, drug addiction, um, theft, even things like murder. But we are all infected the same. Sin, according to Jesus, is something inside everyone. It's something that has power over us beyond our control that pushes us into self-destruction. It could be a slow, unnoticeable nudge, or it could be a painful, violent shove, but either way, we are all of us falling off of a spiritual cliff. 
But where is Jesus getting this? Why is Jesus so convinced of the destructive nature of sin? Where is this coming from? Well, because Jesus knows that human beings are not the product of a random process over time. Human beings are not blank slates, that, and, and we decide for ourselves what's right and wrong, and we decide for ourselves what's good and bad for us, and we decide for ourselves what's beautiful and what is ugly. He knows that is not what we are like. We were created. We were designed by a designer, a, a, creator, a loving creator God. And like anything that has a design, if you ignore that design, If you go against that design, you destroy the thing that was designed, right? Um, I have a car that I hate, and uh, it's always got problems. And my wife can affirm for you that my spiritual, my personal holiness is challenged every week by this car. Um, Don't ask her how, but just know that. When I take the car to the mechanic, which is fairly often, and the mechanic tells me, you need new brake pads, uh, I may be frustrated that I'm shelling more money out for this car, but, he, but here's what I don't say to the mechanic. I don't say, well, that may be true for you and your car, but, but don't, yeah, don't force that on me. Uh, I decide what is best for my car, what is good and what is bad. So thanks, but no thanks. Thanks for your opinion. Why don't I say that? Because my car has a design by a designer. And I can say, until I'm blue in the face, my car doesn't need new brake pads. I'm going to decide what's good and bad for it. That will not change the fact that sooner or later, someday, I'm going to hit a wall. And sin is the exact same way. I was designed to live a certain way, to be a certain kind of person for my own good. And if I ignore that, it's like cutting my own brake lines. I'm going to total my life like I'm totaling a car. And hell, by the way, which Jesus brings up here, is the place where every human soul is totaled. That's why Jesus always links sin and hell. Um, Hell is a translation of the word Gehenna in this passage, which is a, a real valley outside of Jerusalem at the time. And Jesus often used Gehenna as an image for hell because that's believed where the city burned its trash. And hell, like any garbage dump, is where everything goes that has lost its design, has lost its functionality, and can no longer serve any good purpose. Sin, then, is a piece of hell that lives in the human heart, says Jesus. And if it is not radically dealt with, it will so alienate you from your design and your designer that you will no longer be a human being much like a car is no longer a car once it is totaled. It's just trash. Hell is the place where God's design is completely abandoned, where joy can be neither given nor received, where there is no purpose for anything, where everything good and beautiful and meaningful about being human is gone forever. Jesus is not saying stop sinning because it's wrong, you pitiful, ignorant moron. He's saying, stop sinning because it is literally killing you. It is destroying you. It is undoing you. And I care too much about you to let that happen. Sin is a cancer in every human heart. And if we don't grasp that, 
If we don't get that, if we don't believe that, we aren't just kidding ourselves according to scripture, we're killing ourselves. And when you truly reflect on that teaching, the destructive power of sin, if you truly think about it, you know that it is true. You have lived this. Jesus uses the example of sexual sin in this context. And for good reason, because who in this room has not been affected, perhaps even quite painfully, quite seriously by the sexual sin of someone else? How many marriages, how many families, how many relationships have been completely destroyed by an uncontrollable sexual desire? And I don't say that to condemn anyone, but you know that it's true. You look around you and you see the destructive power Now, sex is a beautiful thing by God's design. It is good. God loves sex. It's his idea. But sin always does this. This is what sin does. It takes something that is good. It takes something that is beautiful, something that is useful, and it turns it into a deadly weapon that kills people. And we aren't going to spend a lot of time talking about sexual sin specifically here Uh, But I know that this is a huge issue for our society. It is a huge issue for our church. It is a huge issue in our own hearts. I get that. Um, So later this week, we are posting material on our website. It's material uh, that can help some some of you if you're struggling with sexual sin. I highly encourage you to check it out. I think it's posted there even right now. It'll be under Leewood News and Events on our website. But even if, with that in mind, even if lust isn't your main symptom, okay, Maybe your sin doesn't express itself in, in your sexuality as much, but it's corrupting something in your life. The way you look at yourself, the way you look at your family, the way you look at your job. Something is being corrupted by sin. And if it's so deadly, if it's so awful, that it literally represents hell in our own lives right now, what are we supposed to do about it? Question two. Okay, Jesus, what do we do about it? What do we do about sin? And Jesus' answer in our passage is this. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. In other words, when we come to Jesus and we say, what do we do about sin? His reply is, you do whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Jesus is saying there should be nothing we wouldn't do to kill sin in our lives. Because if Jesus is right, and, that, and sin is a cancer, if it is a disease, then drastic action must be taken to get rid of it, even if it means permanent loss in another area of life. In Jesus' uh, culture and time, the right eye and the right hand were symbols for the most useful instruments in your life. And uh, it's not hard to imagine why. I mean, through your eyes, you, you see tremendous beauty in God's world. Um, You are able to make eye contact with people that you care about, that you're speaking with. Uh, Your eyes are able to see obstacles in your way and warn you that something's coming. I mean, they're they're very useful. And your hands, likewise. By your hands, you can create uh, amazing things. You can do good work. You can embrace your family. But if the good things in life, says Jesus, like eyes and hands and all that they represent and symbolize, if they begin to cause you to sin... If it is slowly killing you, it is better to live without it. 
What do we do about sin? We do whatever it takes, says Jesus, because if you aren't killing sin, it is killing you. But here's the problem. And it's a big one. It's a big problem. And this is why you can't interpret Jesus literally here when he says, gouge out your eyes and cut off your hands in this battle with sin. Because even if you cut off your hands, both of them, and even if you gouged out your eyes, both of them, would that stop the sin that lives in your heart? If you kept mutilating yourself to cut off every possibility of acting out sinfully, would that make you a better person inside? Would you not still be able to lust even if you couldn't see? Would you not still be able to lie even if you couldn't speak? Would you not still be able to covet, to want things that you shouldn't, that are not yours, even if you couldn't move? Here's another way of putting it. What if whatever it takes isn't enough to free us from sin? What if whatever it takes isn't enough? I would wager that everyone in this room struggles with a certain kind of sin more than others, and and you've been fighting against it, your whole life, it seems like, and you just can't stop doing it. We've tri- you've, it feels like you've tried everything, it's not enough. We need to remember something important in this discussion of sin. Uh, we are all spiritual addicts. We are all addicts. We are addicted to sinful things that even though we know and we've experienced that they are killing us, that they are killing our relationships, We don't care because we love this thing so much. For as deadly as sin is, every one of us loves it more than life itself at one point or another. Cocaine, like sin, is deadly in its own right. But what makes it so dangerous is that once you start, you can't stop. For some of us, it's a certain kind of pleasure that we can't get enough of. For others, it's a certain kind of approval that we can't get enough of. And and for, for others, it may be success or acclaim or wealth or power. Whatever it is, you can't get enough. And literally, our hearts would rather stop beating than to live without this thing. And we could deny ourselves by all kinds of creative self torture if we really put our minds to it. But, would that, but what would never change, or so it seems, in this fight with sin is us not wanting it anymore. You might hear someone say, I no longer look at women lustfully, but every day I want to. How do we kill that? What do we do in our hearts love sin more than we love God. And this is a tension that Jesus does not resolve in this passage directly. But it is our last question. How are we freed from sin? How can we be freed from sin if our very heart is a part of the problem? And the straight answer, the simple answer, though not the easy answer, is you need a new heart. You need a new heart. And this, more than anything else, is precisely what Jesus came to do. Jesus experienced, he absorbed the disease and death of every sinful heart. He did not simply lose a limb or an eye in his fight with sin. 
his entire body was tortured and mutilated on the cross. He did not simply experience a piece of hell like we do when we sin. He entered hell completely. When he was abandoned by his father, he entered hell. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced everything that we had invited into this world by our sin so that we would not have to by trusting in him. In other words, when Jesus died, he purchased a new heart for us. A heart that instead of loving sin can learn to love God more than anything else. It's filled with his love, this new heart. And here's how Paul puts it in Romans 5.5. 5. He says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Jesus died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare to even die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And what this means is, when you have the Holy Spirit, when you've trusted in Jesus and in his sacrifice and you receive the Spirit, he is creating a new heart in you. And notice that the key difference between this new heart and the old one is that you are able to fully comprehend God's love for you. When Paul says God's love has been poured into our hearts, he is saying that the ultimate defeater of sin is not your effort, It's not even your love for God. It's God's love for you. And when you grasp that, when you see on the cross God's love for you, when you could never deserve it, you begin to see how much it cost God to free you from sin. And you begin to see how extremely awful sin must be if it must kill God in order to be killed. And it begins to lose power over you. And when by God's spirit the human heart can grasp the vastness of God's love while we were still sinners, while we were still liars, while we were still idolaters, while we were still adulterers, since power is undone in us and the war we're fighting is over. Now, I say all that, but I know that for most of us in here, even if you're a follower of Jesus and you trust him and you have his spirit, you don't feel that freedom. You don't feel that freedom that I'm talking about. And in a sense, we're, you, still feel a little, you still feel addicted to certain parts of sin. But here's the fundamental difference between the human heart and the regenerated heart, between the sinful heart and the new one. Because in both hearts, sin is still fighting tooth and nail. But in the sinful heart, sin is always advancing. It is always winning. It is always killing But in the regenerated heart, in the new heart, sin is always retreating. It is always losing. It is always dying. The battle continues, but because of Jesus, the war is over. And it may not be completely over in our lives until Jesus comes back and we are resurrected in the age to come. That may be so, but sin will die just the same. And it's only from this vantage point on the other side of the cross, that Jesus' teaching on killing sin makes any sense. 
We must do whatever it takes in our fight with sin because Jesus did whatever it took in his fight with sin. And in his victory, in his victory alone, we have victory. In his freedom, we have freedom. In his love, by his love, we are able to begin to love God. And there is a tremendous hope in that because in the most loving sense that I can mean this, God is not satisfied with who you are right now. He is not content. He will never be content with any of us until we are perfect, until we are exactly as we were designed to be and we are completely free from sin. And that is exactly what he promises to do. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, he talks about God's desire to make us perfect this way. He says, when I was a child, I often had a toothache and I knew that if I went to my mother, she would give me something which would deaden the pain for that night and would let me get some sleep. But I did not go to my mother. And the reason I did not go was this. I did not doubt she would give me the aspirin, but I knew she would also take me to the dentist in the morning. I could not get what I wanted out of her without getting something more, which I did not want. I wanted immediate relief from pain, but I could not get it without having my teeth set permanently right. I knew those dentists. I knew they started fiddling about with all sorts of other teeth, which had not yet begun to ache. They would not let sleeping dogs lie, and if you give them an inch, they will take a mile. And Lewis concludes that by saying, Our Lord is like the dentists. If you come to him, he will certainly grant you immediate relief from your sin. But he's after your whole heart. He will not stop poking and prodding at your sin until you are fully what you were designed to be. We will kill sin with him in this fight. And honestly, it will hurt. It will hurt like getting braces set. It will be hard work to fight sin in your life. It will feel like unending work fighting sin in your life every day, every hour. It may require a level of transparency with another person or group of people that makes you very uncomfortable. It may require you to be honest about things that you'd rather not. It may require you to give up rights that you'd rather keep. It may, in Jesus' words, cost your right hand and your right eye. We could talk about how to fight sin all day, but here's the point. You will never have to lose more than Jesus did in your fight with sin. And you will never fight that fight alone, ever. In the Christian, God rejoices in every step forward that we make in this fight, as pathetic and as feeble as it may seem. Uh, my, my daughter Avery just turned one two weeks ago. And she's a real go-getter, I can tell already. Um, she was walking at nine and a half months, which is really early and uh, makes for a really busy life. Um, I will never forget the first time that she stood between her mother and I and she moved away from her mother's hands and stumbled into mine the first time she walked. And I have never seen, I'll tell you, I've never seen a more awkward, jilted, terrible walk in my life. I mean, it was not pretty to look at, but we've never felt more joy than in that moment. And this is how God sees us in our fight with sin. Our hearts inch closer to God, and it's painful work, 
And like any good parent, though God delights in our initial stumbling, he will not be satisfied until we are mature, walking adults. But here's the point. For the Christian heart that struggles in a fight with sin, and we all do, God is so easy to please, but he is so hard to satisfy. And would you want anything else, anything less from your father? For it is this father who looked at his son Jesus and asked him, what are we going to do about sin? And Jesus replied, and he proved it with his life, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, I will do it. I want to close this morning by reflecting together um, on a passage of scripture. It's from Psalm 51. If you have a Bible, you can turn there now. Psalm 51. This psalm was written by King David after he committed a tremendous sin in his life. And he wrote this as he began to understand that the sin in his life was killing him. And that the only way he could be saved is if God saved him from it. I'm going to read a few verses at a time of this psalm. They'll be up on the screen if you don't have a Bible. And then I'm going to pause for a few moments to let us digest the words. And here's what I want us to do. I want us to pray these words over ourselves. I want us to, as best we can, insert our worst symptoms of sin into David's words. I want us to, as best we can, to feel the weight, the deadly weight of sin in our lives. And then I want us to give that weight to God in exchange for a clean heart from Jesus. All right, let us begin. Psalm 51, starting in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart.
Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a a willing spirit. Father, we rejoice in this prayer because you have fulfilled every promise in this prayer. By your son Jesus, you have created a clean heart in us. You have renewed our spirit. You will never cast us from your presence. You will never take your Holy Spirit away because through your son, you made us your children again. You restored us to the life we were designed to live. And you promise to never leave us or forsake us in this battle we have with sin. And one day we know you are going to completely defeat it. We rejoice in that. We pray all this in Jesus' name, our victor. Amen.